Hi, I'm Dr. Mila Brujic, and I'm joined by Dr. Cecilia Ketting, and we're going to be talking about not getting crossed in today's OI show. Cecilia, thanks for being on the show today. Uh, appreciate it. Um, if you could give the audience just a little bit of a background on yourself, where you practice, where you went to school, when you graduated. Yeah. Um, so I went to Southern College of Optometry in Memphis and graduated about 2012. I went on to do my residency at Cincinnati uh, VA and then um, practiced a little in Arizona and came to Virginia to practice with Virginia Eye Consultants about eight years ago. And we are a secondary tertiary referral medical center. Uh, so I work with a, a fairly large group of uh, MDs and ODs, uh, seeing quite a bit of uh, really interesting patients. Yeah, you are. You work with um, arguably some of the best of the best in the profession, both in ophthalmology and optometry, Cecilia. I know that you have a rich lineage within eye care. Um, your grandfather, Dr. Robert Ketting, um, was a pioneer when it came to contact lenses. And much of what we know with contact lenses, in particular with some of the specialty lenses and fitting some of our more advanced patients, um, come from the foundation um, that your grandfather actually laid. What's interesting is he was a pioneer at the time. Um, and, you know, you fast forward to today, and I, I see a lot of that in you. We had the opportunity to share um, some of the stories um, at AOA, but you guys are doing a lot of advanced things. And one of the things that you're really becoming entrenched in is keratoconus, but not necessarily the correction optically of keratoconus, but managing it. And, and describe that a little bit more to us, the audience, and, and how that's like fundamentally changed over the last decade. Yeah, so it's been really interesting uh, to be a part of and being in a practice that has the benefit of a lot of really advanced technology, as well as some of the, like you said, arguably blessed minds in both MD and ODs. Uh, we have great ability to diagnose these patients earlier, even within the last you know five years, not even a decade. Um, with the advent and, and implementation of the Pentacam um, with the Schleim flu. So I, even within the last year, we actually, we've had the Pentacam, but hadn't really been utilizing it to its full potential when it comes to our keratoconus patients in helping to identify them earlier and watching for changes. So I've really kind of jumped on board with that over the last year uh, getting a better uh, working understanding of yeah. the, the technology itself. And then we also have been doing cross-linking for a number of years. We were part of some of the studies for the approval by FDA for the United States. And then we've also continued past that to treat our patients with it. So with the ability to identify earlier and then also treat in-house for those patients to really stabilize them prior to getting to the point when they have um, more corneal damage and scarring and decrease in vision to where we need to do a transplant. I think that's really been super interesting and, and a definite game changer uh, for our patients. Well, that's that's where I think it's all changed because I, I remember like even when I was in school, we learned about keratoconic patients, how to refractively correct them as best as possible, whether that entailed glasses, soft or rigid gas permeable lenses. And then we would talk about 
essentially waiting. And if they got bad enough, they would require a corneal transplant. But this is a totally different mindset. This is a totally different shift. Describe to, to the viewers um, why it's so important to catch these patients early on to help prevent. So describing um, to you all, it's so important to, to identify these early. And you're absolutely right. It was a, you know, I'm sorry you have keratoconus. We're going to make you see okay or the best we can until you potentially need a transplant. And the problem with transplants is that, you know, they have, they have a life. They aren't going to live forever. They're going to work forever. Typically the average uh, corneal transplant, that's not a hard and fast role, but it's about 20 years. And then they need to have it done. Our keratoconic patients are starting with problems in the early, um, late teens, early twenties. And so we're talking about somebody who's in the early decades of their life. And we know are going to live longer than 20 years Therefore, they're going to have to have repeat transplants, which can be costly. It is difficult for them. It is a very uh, time-consuming, involved thing, um, just not only for the surgery itself, but also for the care and the maintenance on the patient side for the rest of their life. Yeah. It also means issues with even just optical clarity with the corneal transplant, even though most of the times it is better than their previous keratoconic eye. Now, if we can identify these patients earlier and get them treated earlier, this can make a huge difference in somebody's life. Uh, one, not just for the transplant, but two, if we do cross-linking as they're younger and identifying it before they have such a high amount of astigmatism that they have overall poor optical clarity, even with glasses or contact lenses, we can potentially improve their quality of life. Yeah. and allow them to have more options um, as far as, you know, even what they'll do with their life because they have a much more uh, stable eye and a much better clarity as far as um, optical vision. Yeah. Some of these patients, like we might even, if we catch them early enough, we could um, arm them with, with a life of glasses as opposed to even needing to go to contacts or specialty Absolutely. contact lenses. Yeah. And even if they require specialty lenses, um, oftentimes when the ectasia gets so severe, it becomes much more difficult from a fitting perspective. So all of those things just make it easier for the patient, better quality of life, like you said, and it makes the whole process easier for them to manage because now they have functional glasses if they need them. Now they have the functionality of contact lenses if they need it. Um, there's, there's another component here too, Cecilia, and I think, you know, catching and identifying these patients early we communicate with them differently, right? Reducing um, their environmental risk factors. Tell me how, how that conversation looks like in your office. If you're identifying somebody who either has questionable results on um, topography or tomography, um, or you've clearly identified it, but it's at a very early phase. I mean, what's the conversation start or what does the conversation look like from there? So with, when it's, when we're at that early stage and we're identifying it, uh, you know, there is absolutely environmental. So we talk more about making sure, obviously, if we have underlying, uh, allergies, we're treating that, uh, decreasing any eye rubbing, uh, anything that could be of risk to that we know puts them at a higher risk to, mm -hmm. uh, progress. But I also am talking with them about having uh, cross-linking early and as early as we possibly can. If I can identify that it's very early keratoconus, you're absolutely having it. If there is a risk that somebody has it, and I think that I'm suspicious of it, um, we do have the genetic testing now. 
um, that even though it's not giving, you know, a it's not specific in saying yes or no, they don't have it. It gives us a percentage of likelihood that they'll develop it. If so, patient- so Cecilia, just, yeah. just to be clear here. So if you're kind of finding some suspicious findings on tomography where it's maybe not necessarily a uh, clear cut cone, but you're saying there's some risk factors here that make me suspicious, you're then ordering the genetic test, correct? Yeah. And is that, um, how's that administered in the office? Uh, so we do the swab in office and send it out. Um, it's a fairly easy process. Uh, we do have our staff trained to do it. So I don't do it myself, but yeah, yeah, yeah. we do have the staff, the staff help us with that. And then we're able to send that out um, and gain some more information that might weigh, you know, a little bit more heavy in helping us decide how closely we are going to watch the patient yeah. or do we want to go ahead and preemptively they're 90% likely that they're going to develop it. Mm-hmm. Do we want to go ahead and treat with, um, with cross-linking at that point? Mm-hmm. It also is a good thing. And one of our surgeons is very, um, on board with using the genetic testing. Anytime she has a patient that, uh, is going to be doing PRK or LASIK, and is she even slightly is suspicious or there is a family history of keratoconus, she'll go ahead and administer that just so that we're not putting a patient at risk for developing keratoconus or ectasia or higher risk of ectasia uh, further down the line after the surgery. That's remarkable. You know, with the diagnostic tools that we have, we're, we're able to catch things yeah. sooner. And never did I think that we would be able to assess genetic risk and make that come into play. Um, I, I really see like every disease state that we manage, glaucoma was really the one where we first just kind of started catching subtleties in terms of nerve fiber layer defect, ganglion mm-hmm. cell complex reduction. That's those structural changes that you just can't see any place else. And it's kind of spread to everything that we do in optometry. We're just getting better at catching conditions earlier because we know the sooner we catch it, the sooner we can start discussing the reduction of environmental risk and, and also to putting those patients on an appropriate path, path of treatment. I think corneal cross-linking, again, it just provides this, this facet, this avenue for keratoconic patients that never existed before. So now they have this, this um, likelihood of significant slowly slowing down of progression, if not complete um, slowing down of progression by resolidifying. Um, the collagen in the cornea. And I I just think it's a beautiful option for these patients and helps prevent some of these more severe cases from occurring. So in your experience, um, Cecilia, what what is the, um, like, when is a patient not a candidate for corneal cross-linking? Like, when is the keratoconus so severe that they, they really can't do it? Yeah, so there are a couple of different things that can move them out of being an, uh, having that as an option. Typically, I mean, a definite one is somebody who has uh, keratoconus to the point where they're having corneal scarring um, and, and significant striae where we know that this patient is just really past that, that even if it stabilizes it, the visual uh, potential yeah. is just not going to be great. And they would benefit more from having a transplant. Patients who have a, um, a strong history or a history of any kind of um, herpetic keratitis, uh, stromal, yep. epithelial, anything where we know because we're using UV that it's potentially going to cause it to activate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then um, patients who have 
thin pachymetries where their apex has become so thin, I believe it's 450. And that again is not, there's a, there's a little nuances with that. I know that when we, um, when we use some of the uh, drops for the cross-linking, it actually causes swelling of the cornea so that we're able to treat some people who, when we do natural pachymetry prior to are a little bit under that 450, 400 micron level, because we know during the process, it will actually thicken and protect the cornea while we're doing it so that they're not running a risk for, um, for, for further problems. So it, again, it, reiterating what you said initially, it's best to get these patients treated sooner mm-hmm. to prevent them to the point where they may not necessarily be able to get treatment. Yeah. So, Cecilia, thank you so much. Um, we're, we're just about out of time here. I could talk another hour with you. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. And thank you all for joining us on the OI Show. Make sure you su- subscribe to our podcast. And Cecilia, once again, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This was great.